But if we can recognize that about ourselves and nurture within ourselves the part of us that craves adventure and we optimize for that, I think we're going to find that we have a much, much sharper career trajectory. You're listening to Sunny Side Up, a B2B podcast that brings you the juiciest insights from go-to-market leaders and practitioners. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Sunny Side Up. I'm your host, Eric McIntyre. Today, I'm super excited to talk to Kevin Knight on comfort is the enemy of growth. Kevin is CMO at Vita Health, a virtual care company that treats chronic diseases like diabetes. Before joining Vita, Kevin was general manager at Compass, where he led the company's operations and PNL for Northern California. He also held marketing roles at Google and Microsoft. Kevin earned a BA at the University of Utah and an MBA from MIT. Very impressive. He lives in Oakland, California with his wife and three kids. In his free time, Kevin loves trail running, camping with his kids, and is on a quest to find the world's best cup of hot chocolate. Aren't we all? Kevin, I'm really excited to talk to you. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Eric. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, yeah, it just, you know, in case it doesn't weave its way naturally into the conversation so far, for those of you wondering, the best cup of hot chocolate is at L.A. Burdick, which has locations in Cambridge and New York and New Hampshire. So that's where we are so far. Well, love it. Kevin, you stole my next question. I'm writing that down for my wife. He's going to love it. I appreciate it. Oh, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. Absolutely. Awesome. Let's dive into it. Kevin, you've got a very interesting career path. You've moved between B2B and B2C roles during the course of your career. Can you just tell us about your experience in making these transitions? think it's an artificial barrier. I don't actually think there is a clear line between finance and marketing, between marketing and sales, between marketing and HR. There's not, in my mind, a clear line between B2B and B2C. Ultimately, every marketer's job is to convince people to do something. It might be to buy something. That's how we usually think of it, but it's not always to buy something. It's to do something. And we do that at scale where our salespeople do it one-on-one. And whether it's a, an audience of businesses you're trying to get to do something or an audience of individuals, you're still trying to get a human being on the other side of this equation to get motivated to do something. And so for me, I think it was my naivety that and a bit of luck with some fortuitous reorgs and things like that that got me to the place where I didn't see that line because I was bouncing back and forth between it pretty regularly in the early years of my career. But now that I'm a couple of decades into this, I don't, I just don't see the line. And I would have no problem taking someone who had a career of B2C experience and putting them in a B2B role or vice versa. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, that actually segues perfectly next to my next question. You mentioned during an earlier discussion that, hey, people who do approach uh, consumer problems with B2B experience are much more sophisticated and unique in how they go after their audience. You, I guess, elaborate on that thought. Yeah, you know, so I think that there's a couple of weaknesses and a couple of strengths that are just endemic to those types of roles, whether it's B2B or B2C. So on the B2C side, what you're generally going to get better at just through osmosis is the emotional side of marketing, the storytelling, and really just trying to tap into people's emotions to help them to make that decision that you're trying to get them to make. On the B2B side, what you're going to learn through osmosis is more about the targeting, right? The sophisticated, how do you measure intent and how do you find the needle in the haystack? Because 
you tend not to just on the consumer side, you might be looking at all the women in America between the ages of 25 and 40. That's not a very sophisticated audience cohort. And while you might deploy sophisticated ad tech to find people that have intent, it's not, it doesn't come quite with the level of, you know, sophistication and nuance on building that you're more likely to see in a B2B environment. You know, on the flip side though, what you end up with, and I actually just got this question just this week, are there any good B2B brands that, that have done a good job of like storytelling? Because when you ask most people to think of the brands that really inspire them, they're going to give you a B2C answer. You know, they're going to say things like Apple and Nike and Mercedes and BMW and things like that. And not many people have a B2B brand come to mind. I don't think that's because B2B brands don't have great brands. And certainly many of them are on inner brands, top 100 list, and many of them are household names, but I don't think that they are sandboxes for the type of creative emotive marketing that really evokes the kinds of emotions that, that people think about when they think about the best brands in the world. And if I could share a, a quick example that I think illustrates this really well years ago, gosh, this would have been probably 10 years ago, but everyone will remember this, the Volvo Jean-Claude Van Damme truck ad. And so there was this video, right, of Jean-Claude Van Damme standing with his one leg on each of two giant Volvo semi-trucks. And then you got the calm Enya music playing in the background and these trucks start driving. And over time, they start spreading apart further and further until Jean-Claude Van Damme does the splits and it's called the epic split. And so Back then, I was in the Facebook creative shop and spent a lot of time with top creative agencies, friends at that agency that did that ad. And as we were discussing it, and as you peel back the strategy behind that ad, if you talk to the people behind it, they'll tell you that the idea was everybody who buys big rig trucks, semi-trucks for their fleet, for their company, that's a sure B2B play. But at the end of the day, all of those people are moms and dads. And the insight was, if we could make it cool to be associated with Volvo trucks versus Peterbilt or whoever, such that these parents' kids would think it was so cool that like mom or dad just placed an order for 15 Volvo semi-trucks, could we tap into that emotional side of the buying? And they did that. And Volvo has done a great job with that over the years. And so that's a good example, I think, of a brand did not stick to its B2B stand sandbox. They pulled in a strong consumer agency and they made what was the winningest ad, I think, across all the ad award shows that year. But it was a B2B ad at the end of the day. I love that. You know, I think as B2B leaders or B2B marketers or sales folks, we often forget that there are real people working at these companies. We're so focused on business goals and strategy and objectives that we often do forget that emotional side of things. Um, that can absolutely come from someone with that B2C background, as you mentioned. Thinking back on your experience <laughs> and shifting around from B2B to B2C, going from company to company, embracing change. We talked about working in an organization that enables you to take up interesting challenges, right? Not staying comfortable, but embracing difficulty or uneasiness. What does that do to your career growth in the long run when you're not staying stagnant, but you are constantly changing and growing? Yeah, so there are pros and cons to it. I was reflecting on this not long ago and thinking, you know, it seems that I tend to leave a company right around the time when things start getting comfortable. And I don't just mean 
I know how to do the job. You don't have to take the cheapest flight at 6 a.m. in the back of coach. Like the company's gotten to the point where you might even get to go business class if it's an international trip or something like that. That's about the time when I, I tend to leave. And I think that most of us have a tendency to crave comfort. That's just human nature. But if we can recognize that about ourselves and nurture within ourselves the part of us that craves adventure, I think, and we optimize for that, I think we're going to find that we have a much, much sharper career trajectory. And it reminds me of, I joined Pinterest in the pretty early days, roughly first hundred employees. And around then, Ben Silberman, the founder, and up until very recently, the CEO of Pinterest, he would talk to employees and he would say things like, look, I can't guarantee X, I can't guarantee Y, I can't guarantee Z, but I can guarantee that this is going to be an adventure and we're going to grow. And if that's what you're looking for, um, there's lots of opportunities out there to grow. And I just think not enough people make the career decisions based on how much am I going to grow in this role. And they tend to place much more emphasis on, just to use an example, compensation. I think four jobs changes in a row, I took meaningful pay cuts and was lucky that I had not gotten accustomed, as Clayton Christensen used to say, to living at the top of my paycheck. And so I was able to do that. But if you're optimizing your career changes for pay, you're probably going to have a shallower, you know, less steep uh, growth curve in your career than if you optimize for how much you're going to learn, how much you're going to grow. And if you extrapolate this out over, I'll call it three jobs times two to three years each, a 10-year period, you could be in a wildly different place in your career if you optimized for challenge and growth versus if you optimize for compensation. And you'll be making a lot more money probably if you optimize for the challenge and the growth over those 10 years because you just chose to look at things from a little bit different vantage point when you were evaluating opportunities. I love that. Um, you know, it couldn't be more true. I think for a lot of people, they have kind of followed a career path that they got their first job out of college, right? Whether it be marketing or sales. And that's really the only thing they've ever known. But there is some kind of pitfall of typecasting yourself into a particular type of role, right? He can discuss like, what this can lead to and the fear or the potential problem of losing out on opportunities down the line? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think we we have to get better at not selling ourselves short. I think we tend to define, and this is on hiring managers too. I mean, I can remember, I won't name the company and I'm a big fan of the company, but I wanted to be a product manager in a very specific industry very early in my career. And I was interviewing with them and they just kept getting really hung up on the fact that I had never been a product manager. Like that had never been my job title before. And I was like, but I literally founded a company and built it and, and got to you know, thousands of users. By no means did it take off. I built the product. I did all of the things that this job calls for. I'd just never been a product manager because it was a company that had two people and I was the founder. We didn't have a dedicated product manager. It was my job. And they really got hung up on that. And so a lot of people, including marketers who are navigating their own careers, will be inclined to define themselves based on their experiences versus based on the perspective that those experiences give them. 
So if you think about it from the perspectives, let's say you're spent your whole career in sales, but a job catches your eye or a company catches your eye and you're thinking about making that switch to marketing, sales is a great place to move into marketing because you understand the customer so well. And if marketing is about convincing people what to do at scale, being able to get inside the head of the customer is going to really help shape effective marketing. But most people in sales, if they're going for a sales job, they're going to be talking about quota attainment and how they overcome objections and their pitches and things like that. But that same person, if they're going for a marketing job, can talk about their experience in a way that's different, but equally valuable, if not more so, to other jobs. I spent the last four years hearing every single objection, every single aspect of decision-making for our target customer. I know exactly what's going through their mind when they hear anything. And that's going to help me to craft perfect positioning and messaging that I know is going to resonate with them. Any marketing leader worth their salt would love to have somebody on their team who can get in the head of the buyer. And so that's just one example of how I think we hold ourselves back by defining our opportunities by our experiences when really we should be looking at our experiences as what defines our perspectives and how those perspectives can become valuable in a wide range of jobs that might have nothing to do with the career ladder. And it, it reminds me of the, I don't know who said this, it's probably quoted by Anonymous, but if your ladder is leaning up against the wrong wall, you don't want to just keep climbing up it for the sake of climbing up it. Sometimes you might need to take a step down a couple of rungs to climb up the ladder that's leaning up against the right wall. Sometimes you might want to make a leap from one ladder to another, but just because you, your first job out of college was in HR or sales or marketing or product or whatever does not mean you got to keep climbing up that ladder. You might want to switch walls. I love that. Plus, you know, no one wants to fall up the ladder at the top. Keep switching. Be comfortable. So uh, let's pivot to be to help, right? Obviously, this year has been very unique with economic uncertainty. I'm curious, how are you and your organization adapting to the current economic downturn? As we think about, hey, you need to change and don't be comfortable with the status quo. Yeah, I was reflecting on this just this week because I gathered most of the marketing team for our what is becoming like a roughly three times a year offsite. And I think in the beginning, of, and we're a fully remote company, by the way. So I've got a, a team of about 25 people spread out everywhere from San Francisco to Southern California, Seattle, Boston, a couple of people in Columbus, Ohio, North Carolina, Utah. They're everywhere. And in the beginning of that switch to becoming a remote first company, I think most people are worried about people working hard. Like, are they going to quiet quit or are they going to actually put in like a solid, honest day's work? I'm not worried about that at all. And more than two years of fully remote work has shown me that people who are fully remote will work hard and they'll do great work. The potential pitfall is that people will get stuck in ruts. You know, they'll wake up every morning and they'll have their routine and they'll do the things that they did the day before. And they might even try to do those things better than they did the day before, faster, cheaper, whatever, but they'll be doing the same things. And as I was reflecting on this week, I realized that if nothing else, pulling people together for an offsite, in this case, we gathered at the company headquarters, was kind of an onsite, but nobody had ever really been there before except for a couple of us. And it gave us that chance to just shock the system out of the status quo and really just take stock of, we do this. Like your job is webinars and you do these sponsorships and these industry trade publications or whatever, but why do you do those ones? 
I know we've been doing them for a couple of years, but should we completely rethink the things that we're doing? And so as we think about how we're going to respond in times of economic uncertainty, we have to acknowledge that there can't be any sacred cows. None of us have the luxury of doing things in the future just because we've done them in the past. We have to be constantly evaluating things. And this is, by the way, where performance marketers have a bit of a leg up because they're used to evaluating things against a common metric click-through rate or CAC or cost per lead or something like that. And if something starts plateauing or tapering off in its efficacy or its efficiency, they're going to start looking at other opportunities. But not all marketers do that and everyone needs to. So that's what I would say is we just have to be willing to completely change things up and not only willing, but actively looking for places where we should be changing things up and shaking up the status quo. Yeah, I I love that, Kevin. It's funny, I actually read a post on the subject of remote work. And I think that the the line was, hey, it's easy to fall into those deep ruts of execution when you're fully remote. And as someone who works remote, I never really realized this until two years into it. I consider myself a hard worker, but you do need those social interactions and those team events to jumpstart the system. And I love that you guys are thinking about that. You're aware of it and you're making pivots accordingly. So maybe some parting thoughts. Is there a book, blog, newsletter, website, or video that you would recommend you to know, our listeners? I, I take pride in hiring a lot of people who've never been marketers before. And so it's a question I get a lot. What should I read if I want to become a marketer? And I think the answer has been the same for something like 45 years, in my view. And that is Ogilvy on advertising. This book was written by David Ogilvy back in, I want to say the 60s. It may have been after that. He might have written it in like the 70s. I could check. It's on the bookshelf behind me, but I'll spare the time and not do that. But this was a book that David Ogilvy, who many people would consider the founder of modern advertising, wrote. And it's just that. It's Ogilvy on advertising. And it's his thoughts on basically marketing. And he goes through what makes good copy and what makes good visuals and things like that. But it could just as well be titled Ogilvy on marketing or Ogilvy on psychology or behavioral economics or anything else, because what David Ogilvy was such a genius at was getting in the mind of the buyer. And so anybody who's trying to convince people to do something, whether it's through advertising or marketing or sales or any number of other things, would I think benefit greatly from reading this classic, fun to read, easy to read book with loads of examples, because that's the business we're in. And I don't think it helps us to define them so narrowly as even sales and marketing or B2B and B2C, as we've discussed. It's we're in the business of trying to understand what people want and then taking that information to match it up with what we would like to get them to do. And and so Ogilvy on advertising, I think, is the book that everyone needs to read if you haven't read it before. Lots of others, too, but start with that one. I love it. Thanks so much. Um, well, obviously, we love having thought leaders like you from the B2B space on our show. Um, do you share the names of like, inspirational people in the B2B space that you would recommend? This is one of my favorite things about your podcast. And th- there's so many names that come to mind, but I'll share a few of them, mainly because they are keeping in the theme of what we've talked about today. And so their names came to mind when I was thinking about this inevitable sort of trademark question. The first is a guy named Steve Patrizzi. So Steve is actually the guy who hired me at Pinterest. And what I love about Steve is that for a long time, Steve ran global sales at LinkedIn. He was a career-long sales guy at places like Yahoo. And even before that, I think he was at the Wall Street Journal, maybe. And he'd been doing like ad sales his whole career. And then he made the switch and was Pinterest's first head of B2B marketing. 
And he's gone on to be a, a CMO several times since then. And just a fascinating guy. But he, after being very successful in sales, decided that he wanted to spend the rest of his career in marketing and he did it. And uh, he brings a lot of really great perspective to it because he came from sales. The next one that comes to mind just because is, is it's Yvonne Chen and she's the VP of marketing for the B2B side of Calm. So what she's doing is taking one of the most well-known consumer wellness brands in the world, Calm, or the meditation app, and going after the B2B market there. And I, I think she's on a fascinating journey in being able to do that. And I've enjoyed watching the tactics that she employs as a B2B marketer who doesn't have where that business has historically not been B2B, that has a great B2C track record. And then the third one is a guy who endlessly inspires me named Nick Staggy. And he is a guy who I inherited when I became chief marketing officer at Expert Voice. He'd been at that company for a while before I got there. And he just, I just learned in the trenches with him that he just had the hustle and he'd done a lot of consumer marketing at places like Skullcandy and a GoPro. And I had him in charge of B2B marketing mainly because he was just so darn creative and he would always find a way. He was the guy that was just, he was like Mr. Fix-It. It didn't matter what the problem was. He was going to fix it. And his entire career and life has been one example after another of figuring out how to solve a problem in creative ways. So those are three folks who, um, none of them really are at super high profile jobs right now. Instead, they're people that have characterized their careers by never settling, always wanting to learn, always challenging themselves to tackle those really tough problems. And it's endlessly inspiring for me to watch them do their work. They sound like amazing individuals. And I thought of a dozen topics while you're describing them. So <laughs> month too. Last, but not, last but not least, how can people get in touch with you after this podcast? I'm a big fan of LinkedIn. So LinkedIn uh, slash in slash Kevin J. Knight or just look me up on LinkedIn. But uh, love that platform. Love the community of people that are there trying to help each other think outside the box and push things ever further. So look forward to connecting people there. Awesome. Kevin, I really enjoyed having you on our podcast today. The overall theme for our listeners, hey, don't be afraid of change. Challenge yourself and go outside your comfort zone. Thanks for being on our show. Thanks for the awesome cup of hot chocolate suggestion and appreciate it so much. Enjoy that. Thanks, Eric. Today's episode is made possible by Demandbase. Demandbase is smarter GTM for B2B brands to help marketing and sales teams spot the juiciest opportunities earlier and progress them faster. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Sunnyside Up. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcasts. You can also find us on YouTube and Demandbase TV.